Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they're not in trouble as others are, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and arrogant, I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you, you hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but the strength, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. You'll see on the back of the service sheet an outline of where we're going, and the question, the big question of Psalm 73 is there at the top. Is it good to be a Christian? That's today's question, very simple question. Is it good to be a Christian? And you might think that's a bit of a no-brainer topic to tackle on a Sunday morning. I mean... You're hardly expecting me to stand up here and say, well, actually, on reflection, no, <laughs> it's not good to be a Christian. Surely the preacher's job is to just say, don't ask silly questions. Of course it's good. Of course it's brilliant. We all love it. But one of the refreshing things about the Bible, which is a book from God, not just from man, one of the refreshing things is that it's so honest. We saw that last week. We were looking at death last week. Not comfortable, but it was honest. True wisdom, we saw, kind of faces up to reality. And this week, in Psalm 73, we meet this guy, Asaph, who's a key singer-songwriter for God's people. But he was in a real crisis. Over half the psalm describes him genuinely struggling to believe that it's worth following God. Hey, Asaph, is it good to be a Christian? To be honest, at the moment... I'm really not sure. 
verse 2. Have a look at it. We're on page 485. If you closed your Bibles, it would help to have it open. Page 485, Psalm 73, verse 2. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Now, it's worth saying up front that by the time he writes this song, um, the crisis is actually over. He's moved on. So verse 1, here's the, the conclusion. Verse 1, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Or if you flick to the very end of the psalm, verse 28. Verse 28, but for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So the conclusion, where he's got to, in the psalm is, yes, it is good to be a Christian. That's where Asaph has ended up. But that is not where he started. And I'm guessing it's not where many of us might be starting this morning. I mean, obviously, if you're not a Christian, I assume it's because you think it's not a good idea. You don't think it's worth it. Rather not be. Because it is, I mean, it's freely open. Anyone can become a Christian. So I guess you're not yet persuaded it's good to be one. But of course, this psalm is written by a believer asking the question. So for those of us who are believers, maybe some of us are struggling with doubts, wondering if Christianity is not actually all it's cracked up to be, worrying that maybe God's not there or maybe God doesn't care. In fact, if even Asaph, this lead singer, this kind of famous songwriter of Israel's choirs and psalms, a famous name in the priestly tribe of Levi, if even he was considering giving up, well, no one's immune. Uh, Quite a number of years ago now, Psalm 73 was a massive comfort to me. I was struggling deeply with doubts, asking things like, is Christianity objectively true? And is it really worth taking up my cross to follow an invisible king? It was really isolating at the time because... Everyone else seemed really sure around me at church. It, it was embarrassing because I was someone who was supposed to be leading others. And it may be there are just one or two here tonight who are at that point, this morning, sorry, at that point of, of um, just wondering, is the cost too high? Maybe it comes when you start a new phase of life. I guess there'll be people beginning to move to Edinburgh for new jobs or who are traveling around at the moment. That can be a time for thinking things through. And now you're just starting to think, maybe Jesus is more trouble than he's worth. Well, Psalm 73, at that point in my life, told me I wasn't the first believer to to come across that question. And so if that's you this morning, nor are you. But actually, I think we need this psalm not just for kind of crisis moments like that. I think all of us believers need this psalm for the sake of our witness wonder if you've ever been asked by a friend or a colleague or a neighbor, oh, you're a Christian, do you enjoy that? What's it like being a Christian? Is it good? Are you glad you follow Jesus? And I wonder if that question has come your way, whether you've ever been tempted to lie, as in make it sound better than it feels. <laughs> to say, oh yeah, it's really great. Every day, I love it. When deep down, sometimes you find it pretty hard. That happened to me in our last flat. I was getting to know one of our neighbors. We were comparing our jobs. He discovered what I did, and the questions started coming. And he said, do you enjoy working for a church? 
And the question caught me at a bit of a bad time. I was really tired, I was a bit worn down, um, always standing up, saying things that some people in the world think are completely crazy. I was aware of all the costs, and I kind of forgotten all the benefits. He asked, do you enjoy working for a church? But I knew the real question was, is it good to be a Christian? And my honest answer might have been, no, it doesn't feel like it at the moment. But I knew I couldn't say that because I wanted him to become a Christian. I mean, I'd love him to become a Christian. So, so what do you do? Do you lie? Well, in the end, I told him the truth, which was this. To be honest, I'm finding it hard at the moment, but I think it's the most important thing in life. Actually, that moment kind of woke me up to the spiritual battle, the spiritual slide that was going on in my heart. I realized I needed a health check, and again, Psalm 73 helped. If I can't honestly say, for me, it is good to be near God, well, then I need some time reflecting on the truths in here. So this is a psalm for the crisis, and it's just a psalm for our witness, our everyday witness to how good it is to be a Christian. We're going to work through it in three parts there on the service sheet. Um, firstly, the real risk, which is envy, and then a massive turning point, and then the second half of the psalm, a real remedy. So a real risk and a real remedy with a big turning point in the middle. Um, let's dive into verse 3 for the real risk. And it's really clear in verse 3 that Asaph's basic problem is envy. Envy, verse 3. So my steps had nearly slept, slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Envy is Asaph's problem as a Christian. And who's he envious of? Well, verse 3, envious of the arrogant, seeing the prosperity of the wicked. Now, those words may make it sound like he's talking about kind of egomaniacs or, or murderers, really bad people. But actually, in the Psalms, that language of wickedness is a way of describing anyone who doesn't listen to God. So those of us who are here for the first psalm of our series, Psalm 1, will remember that Psalm 1 started with the righteous and the wicked. Blessed is the righteous man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. The righteous listen to God, but the wicked are those who scoff at what God says, those who live ignoring God. And the psalms all the way through are pretty black and white about this. You're either for God or against him. So Psalm 2, the very next one, says, either you submit to God's King Jesus, that's what the righteous will do, or currently you're a rebel, you're someone scoffing against King Jesus. Submit or scoff, righteous or wicked. And so back in Psalm 73, Asaph is he's looking around him at people who don't believe, don't believe in the God of the Bible, who scoff at what God says, people who don't care what God says, and he's envious of them. In one sense, actually, it's no surprise they're described as arrogant, verse 3, or they scoff, verse 8. If you look at verse 9, it's the most striking description, I think. Verse 9, so verse 8, they scoff. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. In the Bible's view, there are a few things more proud, more arrogant than setting ourselves up against our Creator, thinking we know better. And funny enough, those who scoff at the heavens end up strutting on the earth. 
because they're the highest authority. So, these are the wicked, the scoffers. And the surprise is not that they're described like that. The Psalms keep describing like that. The the surprise is back in verse 3. Have a look at verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant. Verse 3, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The wicked prosper. That's Asaph's problem. The wicked prosper. And that really isn't how it's supposed to work. Remember Psalm 1 again? In all that the righteous does, he prospers, but not so the wicked. That's what it says. The righteous prosper, the wicked don't. So here in verse 12, how can it be, verse 12, that these wicked are always at ease, are increasing in riches? How can they get away with it? They ignore God, the creator, and yet get more and more of his riches, his ease. It's all the way through. Verse 4, for example, they have no pangs until death. Great health. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Great food. The image kind of interweaves graphically their wickedness and their prosperity. Look at verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. So so they've got expensive necklaces, but they're made of pride rather than pearls. They've got extensive wardrobes. Actually, they're full of violence. Verse 7, they're eating like kings, and yet their hearts are full of folly. And Asaph says, I was envious, the wicked prospering. And of course, let's be honest, this wasn't just a problem in Asaph's day. I mean, the injustice of people who take advantage of others and get away with it. Why don't they get what they deserve? I mean, it's a universal question, isn't it? If you look at our global political leaders, some of them seeming to do what they want and getting away with it at others' expense. You look at Hollywood and the sex predators, but they still made it to the top of the tree and have all the money. And it's not just the headline-making criminals kind of out there. It's actually everyone, in the Bible's eyes, everyone who's rejecting God, and yet seems to be a success, has a great life. So you think around at home or at school or at work, Actually, we're surrounded by people who who don't care at all what God says and yet have a really, really comfortable life. The health, the cars, the houses, the holidays, the children, the financial security that some of us would love to have. Maybe if over the summer you've spent time away with with friends who aren't Christians or family who aren't Christians, I wonder if you found this kind of tug on your heart. I kind of prefer their life. How is it good to be a Christian when you seem to be able to ignore Jesus and have a perfectly prosperous life. Envy is a real risk. But actually for Asaph, the envy comes not just because the wicked are prospering, but also because God's people suffer. Have a look at verse 13. Verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. 
All the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Asaph, Asaph found himself thinking, what is the point when, when being a Christian makes life harder? What's the point of me struggling to be generous with my money when I'm barely making ends meet? Struggling to make time for people when emotionally I'm, I'm feeling exhausted? Struggling to fight sin in my life when I've got mates who just live for themselves? Seem to have more fun. Struggling to speak up for Jesus when it seems you can ignore him and get away with it. Wouldn't it just be nice to live for myself for a while, thinks Asaph. Judging from his experience, at the moment, godly living seemed futile. And so verse 10, why not just pack it in? Verse 10, therefore, his people turn back to them. That is, believers turning back to the wicked and find no fault in them. Or more bluntly, verse 11, God's not doing his job. How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? I don't know if that question's ever crossed your mind. Does God know what's going on down here? Like, in my office, can he see what's happening? As the liar or the cheat gets promoted, or the Christian gets ridiculed or sidelined, can he see how tight my finances? Does he listen to the BBC? And hear what people say about the gospel and about those who follow the gospel or the bus campaigns or Holyrood or whatever. Is it really good to be a Christian? Well, what do you do with a question like that? Asaph is really glad he didn't jump to a conclusion too quickly. Look at verse 15. If I'd said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph saying, I'm so glad I didn't just go from how I was feeling, my current experience, I'm so glad I didn't just go ahead and write a song. <laughs> write a song for the generation of your children. I don't know what it would have been titled, something like, God's not good, give up and go home. Or imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. Asaph is really glad that he didn't just go from his experience to a conclusion about reality. But how did he turn? Because remember, this isn't where he ends up. This is him describing how bad things were. But now he's absolutely sure, the start and the end of the psalm, he's sure that God is good to Israel that God is good to me. So what turned him round? Well, this is our next point, the key turning points. And it comes in verse 16, uh, 17, but I'll read from verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, verse 16, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. The key turning point there is verse 17. Asaph entered the sanctuary of God. It's clearly the key hinge in the psalm. Up to that point, he's full of questions, doubts, envy. Beyond that point, he's utterly turned around. His perspective completely shifted. So we need to ask the key question this morning. What happened in the sanctuary? 
what happened in verse 17. Like, what was going on that, that turned Asaph around completely? We need to know that because it will help us when we battle envy as believers. And it's worth saying up front that the text is pretty brief, isn't it? Verse 16 and 17. When I thought I had to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. That's what we've got. That's the turning point, verse 17. And I think because that's quite brief, sometimes at this stage, people read in their own favorite cure for spiritual depression. So maybe, if you're someone who thinks church is important, maybe Asaph went and met God's people at the sanctuary. He struggled when he was alone, but when he met other believers, he remembered how good it was to be a Christian. And so the application is come to church. Now, I'm a believer in church and Tuesday night Bible study and prayer. But actually, if that was the the reason, he could have said, it seemed wearisome to me until I met the congregation of Israel. Could have said that. Some coming from a more kind of mystical bent might, might think maybe kind of it was the deep experience of worship, of singing in the sanctuary, or, or a divine vision, a sense of God. Maybe that's what turned him round. Um, so application, if you're struggling in the Christian life, put a CD on, close your eyes, and, and hopefully um, you'll, you'll change. Perhaps others think it, the sanctuary just gave Asaph a chance to have a breather just to stop and think, a bit of mindfulness. But actually, verse 16 says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, as in he tried thinking and it hadn't got him anywhere. It was something about the sanctuary itself, entering the sanctuary that changed his thinking. Maybe he read his Bible. But then the Psalms does have language of, and then I opened your word, or I looked into your law. What was it about the sanctuary that turned him round? Don't get me wrong, every one of those things I've mentioned I think is actually really helpful. Meeting God's people, um, reading his word, uh, listening to Christian music with good words, that's encouraging. Spending time to think and reflect. All of them are good things. But I don't think that's what changed Asaph's heart. He didn't go to the congregation, the CD player, the chill-out room, or the Word. He went to the sanctuary, that is, the tabernacle, what would become the temple, the tent where God uh, kind of placed his presence most fully in Israel. When he went there, he discerned the end of the wicked and lost his envy. To get our heads and hearts around this, we we need to just put our Old Testament glasses on for a moment. So let me tell you about the sanctuary. So this was the tabernacle. Um, You can't actually put God in a box, but to help uh, his people know that he was with them, God symbolically um, uh, placed his presence into the Holy of Holies at the center of this tabernacle. So when, when Asaph steps into the sanctuary... On the simplest level, he remembers to factor in God, God's presence. And that was a big part of it. From this point on in the psalm, Asaph keeps addressing God directly. But there's more to the sanctuary than just that. You see, the sanctuary wasn't just a picture of God's presence with his people. It was a picture of God's holy presence. If you were to go and read Leviticus 16, where it gets set up, 
or Hebrews 8 to 9, if you want to reflect on this. There are two things you notice when you walk into the, ta- the sanctuary, the tabernacle. The first is the restricted access. Only Israelites, not foreigners, were allowed into the outer court. Only priests were allowed into the next bit, the holy place. And only the high priest was actually allowed near where God's presence symbolically dwelt. Restricted access. The second thing you'd notice is blood. The sight, the smell of blood. The tabernacle was kind of washed with blood. There were numerous sacrifices going on to pay for Israel's sin. There was an annual deep clean on the Day of Atonement and where, where there was a yet more sacrifice for sin. God was teaching that I'm so pure and even my people are filthy that therefore there needs to be sacrifice. So I think the day Asaph went to work, he was a Levite singer, remember? So he could enter the sanctuary. He walked past the Levite bouncers stopping anyone unclean coming anywhere close. He walks past the Levite butchers who are sacrificing animals to atone for sin. He walks past altars daubed in blood. He stops short of going into the Holy of Holies for fear of the holy God who lives there. I think at that point, Asaph may have realized again who he was dealing with. It's not just God is there, God is holy. The sanctuary was this visible reminder of God's holiness. It was a a beacon in Israel saying that the creator God of the universe cares about right and wrong. Even in his own people, he just can't endure a hint of wickedness. It's a way of saying this God is not to be messed with. Even believers need protection. And so the turning point was remembering God's holy presence. You might think, well, hang on, hang on. That's, that's reading an awful lot into just half a verse in verse 17. But look at the rest of verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. As in when I saw how God is holy... I discerned what would come of those who are against him. And from verse 18 onwards, we'll see in a moment, he describes what a slippery place, what a dangerous place those who reject God are in at the moment. The sanctuary screamed loud and clear that God does not tolerate wickedness. He's slow to anger, he's patient at the moment, but he will not put up with it forever. He won't even put up with it with his own people. What about for us, though? So maybe you're one of those people feeling envious of non-believers. Maybe you feel like, actually, I do need this heart check. What do we do? Because the tabernacle is not there, the temple's not there. If his turning point was to kind of walk in and and see the blood, how does that help us in 21st century Edinburgh? Well, actually, God's word has recorded how the tabernacle works, so you can read about it, reflect on it. And actually, Hebrews 8 and 9 or Leviticus 16 would be a good place to go if your heart's been wandering. Actually, we have a bigger privilege 
we have a much, much clearer display of God's holiness. The tabernacle, the sanctuary, was only ever pointing forward to the real solution to sin, the cross. All those sacrifices of animals were only ever really pointing forward to the Lord Jesus paying the price for our sin. And so I think if Asaph was around today, he'd be saying, I was envious of the wicked until I looked at the cross. It's exactly the same logic. Do you see it? When I looked at the cross, I discerned their end. I saw what God does to wickedness, to evil. On the cross, Jesus bore the price, the wrath, the shame that our lives deserve. And when you look at that, how can any of us think or say, God doesn't care, he's never going to do anything about it, he's just sitting back and letting them have a successful life? He may be patient, but he's not going to brush it under the carpet. This is really important. You get Christians and churches and sometimes even ministers standing up and saying, God will forgive people regardless. There's no judgment. Everyone ends up in heaven. It's fine. Wickedness isn't that bad. He'll let people off the hook. You get people saying that because it's a comfortable thing to say if you're standing where I am. Let me tell you, look at the cross and that is not possible. The Lord Jesus in Gethsemane prayed Do you remember the prayer? If there's any other way. To which the answer was, there is no other way. Your will, not my will be done. And so he went to the cross because that is the only way for people to be forgiven and right with God for eternity. And so Asaph would say to us, look, I went into the tabernacle and it was pretty clear when he walked in there that God takes sin and wickedness seriously. But he would say to us, you can see the cross. How can you envy your friends and your family and your neighbors and your colleagues who are currently unforgiven and facing that holy God? This is a psalm that should turn us from envy to compassion. Compassion. Just look at the way it's described. Verse 18, having got this uh, reality check, he then weighs up their life and his life in light of eternity. Verse 18, truly, You set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. When anyone's alive and and rich, it looks like their life's going to go forever. They're the ones to be envied. But actually, no one avoids death and it comes at any moment. God controls the timing. Swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. It's funny, we sometimes think the kind of the big cheeses, they're the permanent fixtures of the world, and God's a bit airy fairy, invisible. It's completely the other way around. The creator God is the permanent fixture in the universe. And human lives come and go. Everyone has to face him. Now I know that's uncomfortable to hear, to read. But the Bible tells us truth, and it's far better to know. So that's Asaph's kind of reassessment of the wicked he envies. But actually, 
from verse 21 onwards, he also reassesses where he stands. Just look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterwards, you'll receive me to glory. It's amazing security. They're so slippery where they're standing, about to be swept away, but Asaph's so secure. You hold my right hand. You, you guide me, and afterwards, you'll receive me into glory. And that is amazing grace. When you think about the first half of this song, the first half of this poem, verse 22, he admits it. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Asaph knows he's no better than those he was envying. Just like them, he scoffs against heaven. In his heart, he's tempted to say God is not good. And yet God, in his kindness, still holds on to him, welcomes him home. Why? Because of the cross, because of the sanctuary, pointing forward to that cross that would pay the price for Asaph and for me and for you. You see, when you see a display of God's holiness, it... it, It gives us a compassion for the lost and an appreciation for grace. But for the grace of God, that would be me. And so Asaph's turned from someone bitter that he's missing out on things on earth. Well, now verse 25, there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He now has a hope or he remembers his hope that's greater than wealth and health and life itself. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Given there's only one immovable object in the universe, a holy God, what Asaph concludes, it is that to be against God is to be desperately insecure. Verse 27, behold, those who are far from you shall perish. But for me, verse 28, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge. So as we conclude, let me ask you this. For you personally, how is your footing? Where are you standing at the moment? There's a really slippery place in verse 18 for folks who are not yet trusting in Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Anyone here, you are in a slippery place. God is patient with you. He's been so patient so far, but you will not be able to stand there forever. Just as we saw last week with Psalm 49, however much you've achieved in life, you are on a collision course with the living God. That's slippery. What about those here who are Christians, who are believers, but are stumbling or in danger of stumbling, who are finding themselves questioning if God is good? Well, remember what Asaph did. He didn't jump to a conclusion from his experience. He took a good, long look at the objective reality of God's holiness, which isn't just up there behind some cloud. It's been shown, displayed in time history at the cross. Take a good long look there and, and marvel at God's grace to hold on to us when we treat him the way we do. Finally, I guess many of us here will be actually on solid ground. 
One of the privileges of serving in a church like Chalmers is knowing and meeting believers who've been believers for decades, who have found that the Lord can be trusted through the thick and thin, who, are, who are, have every confidence in him. I mentioned earlier in the service Joan's death, and I, I had the privilege being with her on some of the final days, and she just had absolute confidence that God had paid the price for her. Some of the last words we heard from her were these, wounded for me, wounded for me, there on the cross he was wounded for me, gone my transgressions, and now I am free. It's a wonderful thing. It joins Asaph singing, for me it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge. See, living for Jesus is not easy. The Bible's really clear on that. It's not always easy. It's not a ticket to a comfortable, prosperous, trouble-free life here and now. But it is a relationship with God, the holy, gracious God, the one on whom we can't afford to be the wrong side of, and we wouldn't want to. As our older brothers and sisters would tell us, he's been faithful through thick and thin. Let me lead us in prayer. Truly, God is good to Israel. For me, it is good to be near God. Father, please make this the genuine cry of our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.